Hello, welcome to Under the Skin with me, Russell Brand. This week it's, is it lovely Joel back in the USSR? Yeah. Joel Backin is going to be our guest on the podcast. And if that's the reason that you've tuned in, then be assured that Joel Backin is a fantastic guest. He was sort of, a, would say, an Adam, Adam Curtis-level thinker. He's an American-Canadian writer, filmmaker, and professor at the Peter A. Allard School of Law at the University of British Columbia. You know that book? Um, what was that film, though? Why was that in the intro? You know, Corporation Psychopath or whatever. What's that film called? The Corporation. Is that what it was called? Why is that not in the intro? What kind of person are you? The Corporation, that film where he sort of says that the corporations are psychopaths, he made that a brilliant film. And now he's got a new book out called uh, The New Corporation, How Good Corporations Are Bad for Democracy. He's released a documentary film based on it. You can find out more about both at joelbacken.com. His name is spelt Joel. You know that bit. B-A-K-A-N. Joel Backen. Fantastic conversation, wonderful man, brilliant educator. I felt brighter and mentally stronger when the conversation was finished. So do check that out. Jenny, Jenny, Jenny. <laughs> what? Why are you upset everyone today? Is it he, because of You said that cruel thing to no, Gareth. he was angry at me. You wouldn't let him in the office is no. what I heard. And then you said you've got <laughs> no. deceitful eyes and a no. lying mouth or something no. like that. Really, I was giving him a compliment. How is that a compliment? Because I said his eyes are truthful. Right, truthful eyes. Because he was wearing a mask, so I couldn't see his, his face. <laughs> I think, Gareth, just would you like to recount on mic what happened No, Gareth has a skewed version of it, like a, a witness statement. He's oh, what, and your objective are you, Jen? Yeah. Objectively going around hurting people's feelings? Are you gaslighting? She's I gaslighting us all. I don't gaslight, because I'm too objective. Well, that's what Gaslight would say. Gaslight would say it's the truth, you idiot. No, How could I, I gaslight you, fool, Tamaya? I wouldn't call anyone an idiot. That's true. Um, but you criticised my lovely. No, I didn't criticise it. Thing. Even Gareth said it wasn't wasn't a plus or a minus, and he got upset earlier, so he would have had motive. I'm wearing a beautiful coat <laughs> with a beautiful lining and an Aztec print at the pockets and at the back, running down the spine. I said, Jen, what do you think of this garment? She said, nothing for a while to let me <laughs> stew in my own juice. And then eventually she said, I wasn't expecting the back. That's what you said, wasn't it? Yeah, but that's, you took offence to it. I asked other people what they thought, and they, it'd be the people that work here, Didn't socially distanced and in masks. And, Annabelle, what did you think? Well, Annabelle laughed. <laughs> she laughed. So I think... <laughs> Were you like, was that a coat laugh or was it a laugh at the cruelty of Jen? It was a mixture. <laughs> Some of the laugh was about the coat. I was seeing the laugh as my way out of this, but the laugh. This is a beautiful coat by a very talented person. What's the label? We it's didn't say it wasn't. Look, read the label because this person deserves promotion. What's his name you see, again? it is a nice lining, but I didn't see the lining. I was just surprised. Oh, surprised by the back. Paul Alipe. Paul Alipe. And his brand is called Barcelona. What a gifted guy he is. <laughs> to be scoffed at in this manner. Have you been all right, Jen? Is there anything else that you want to add now that it's, we've adjudicated? See, it's because Mercury is in retrograde. This is it's wrong. not Mercury. <laughs> are you, you're starting to believe in astrology, are you? I don't believe in anything. Nihilist. Dangerous. The most so dangerous everything's people. relevant if you don't believe in anything. <laughs> <laughs> Gareth's got a jaunty song for every occasion. You're the person that should be near the microphone. Lifting people's moods rather than this sour Irish woman dragging us down <laughs> into the doldrums while she sits I like a gnarled oak tree root. 
A withered tree root come to life. You know, like in a film, like uh, maybe <laughs> Guardians of the Galaxy, where it shows a tree, tree roots come to life. I think he's called Groot. Happens a lot of films now. You're a bit like that. No. You're like a, a living But branch. you don't, wouldn't like it if I said something that wasn't true. Because then you wouldn't trust me. That's true. Yeah. That is one of the things about your scepticism. <laughs> it makes you reliable. <laughs> well, well done for being you. And everyone listening, well done for being you. There's going to be a lot more you after you hear Joel Backen educating you on the problems of modern corporations embracing uh, conscientiousness but merely as a further marketing and advertising tool did you enjoy the episodes with adam curtis did you jenny yes <clears throat> because uh, your bits were the best <laughs> that's right <laughs> that's your response because <clears throat> your bits were the best that's, <laughs> that's lovely that's you you that was plausible but I do. No, you're right. I prefer you being your normal self. Don't try to be kind ever again. It was, I'm almost blushing. You liked it? Did you Did you listen to it when you yes. edited it? Yeah, of course. Did you leave me email address in it or anything no, like that? You know, I got rid of the awkward silences. Well, I like those. I left some of them. Some of them were too long. What awkward silences were they? When he, when I would say something to him, and he just didn't say anything. Yeah, about. and it, yeah, yeah. Why do you like that? He doesn't want to rise to your publication. I'm actually friends with him, but like you would not know that. Maybe he's heard conduct. the intros and he's not doesn't want to play into it, your game. <laughs> I'm not playing into that game, Russell. Yeah, it's hurtful, wasn't it? Um, well, here's some comments. Fitness dot food feelings. Fitness dot food dot feelings. <laughs> Ideas are never in short supply. It's the application and execution of knowledge in a beneficial way by competent and honest people, which is sadly lacking in the higher stratas where those who wield influence operate. Yeah, that is what's happened. Good comment, food.fitness.food.feelings. <laughs> who picked this comment? Me. Difficult to believe. Glamour House underscore Deb. Refreshing dialogue, an interesting and intelligent conversation. Thank you. Ananok. Amarnok, 89. Why are we being advised to grow our own food and live off grid, spread people out, from living stat why are we not being advised to grow our own food and live off grid spread people out from living stacked on top of one another the planet isn't as small as we are taught and then some crossed hammers meaning this person might be a West Ham fan like me mystical locations I never run out of ideas let's turn the houses of parliament into a big party hall and put EDM on in there applause hands well done mystical locations yeah why not do that as good as anything else that we've had suggested <laughs> you're look in all honesty are you all right what have you been doing at home um no, absolutely nothing you're telling me now that there's a spot on the sofa you don't sit on anymore <laughs> i'm trying not to because you sit there and then it's the end of the day that's that bit of the I sofa i don't get anything done so i sit on the step in my room on mm. the floor on the meditation cushion you're just moving around your house yeah, Sitting in different <laughs> trying places. to be productive, but not the sofa. What you nestle down there? It just—it's not—it's not good. Do you, are you looking at an app or something? What are you? I'm, up to? I'm working. What exactly is it you do? <laughs> I do this. <laughs> curious business. All right, should we listen to Joel Backen then? Yes. Thank you. Let's do, let's listen to Joel Backen. We'll all learn something. Was there something else meant to be making sure that I promote? There's this a mailing list. Joelbacken.com. Please sign up to the mailing list. You get really good content now. We're doing wonderful work. Uh, Demire's producing a series of 
Well, what it is is me talking about inspirational thinkers, philosophers, poets, etc. Uh, we started with Gandhi. It's a lovely little video. We'll send you that. That's just absolutely for free for you. Also, we're doing live events now, I'm doing some tapping on Zoom with Nick Ortner, who was a guest on this show. If you're a member of the, if you sign up to the mailing list, then uh, you'll get these exclusive free invites and free bits of high value content, is how I would describe that in market speak. Um, the other thing I wanted to tell you side about. Side channel. Side channel. For a side channel now, Awaken with Russell. No, that's Sam Harris. Awakening with Russell. <laughs> oh. Yeah, Awakening with Russell. Check that out for new videos on meditation. And do look at the videos on YouTube as well. And if you if you want to ask me anything, you can ask me anything by going again to russellbrand.com and uh, just ask me any questions using your little mouth hole and uh, it'll be included in the podcast. Should we get on with Joel Backer now, Jane? Yeah. So I feel a bit weary and, and I'm not... Fully myself. <laughs> okay. That's why I think as many of your slurs were what? I was not... particularly bruising. Oh, no. No. Um, let's listen to Joe Backen. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand. Under the skin. Joel Backin, thank you very much for joining us on Under the Skin. Thanks for having me on. I'm a big fan of the show. Thank you so much. I am a fan of your book. In your book, The New Corporation, How Good Corporations Are Bad for Democracy, it seems to me that one of the things you're talking about is kind of a, a, a sort of um, marketing disingenuity that on a sort of personal level could be understood as virtual virtue signaling. What, how deep does it go and why is it something we have to be aware of? I think it goes very deep, which was a realization that I had maybe about five or six years ago. And it's what drove me to do a sequel to the first movie I did, uh, where I revealed corporations as basically psychopathic entities. And the idea oh, that was that you. That's amazing. That was me. <laughs> well, this is a sequel to that. <laughs> oh, my God. Your first film was brilliant. Oh, that's so cool. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, yeah. So. They're psychopathic entities and they use social responsibility to market themselves and make themselves seem good and sell more widgets and cars because they make us like them. That seemed to be the story then. And then when I realized, I, I guess I was, it kind of hit me like a brick. I was watching the 10th anniversary screening of the first film and we were celebrating, drinking champagne, having a nice party. And I realized there's absolutely nothing to celebrate. Everything we talked about in that film has gotten worse. <laughs> Important than that, shortly after the first film came out, business people started calling me and actually paying me a lot of money to come and talk to their organizations. And what they would always say to me is, Joel, thank you. Thanks for calling us psychopaths. We needed the course correction. We know there's a problem. There are like hundreds of thousands of people in the streets protesting the anti-globalization protests. So we're going to be better now. We're going to be good. And I thought, okay, fine. You know, knock yourself out. Go and be good. And But then, like five years later, as I'm watching this happening, I realized, you know what? This being good thing, it's not just like it was before, a marketing ploy. What it really is, is it's a play to take over everything. 
because the way it's rolling out now is not just, we'll be good so we won't pollute your neighborhood. It's, we'll be good, so you should let us run your schools. You should let us run your water systems. You should let us run everything. And those governments, you know, they're not really doing a very good job. So we're good now. We now don't just make money, but we serve the public good. So we're kind of like governments now. So why don't you treat us that way and let us control everything? And, and wow. it was that realization that led me to this new book and the subtitle, That's Why Good Corporations Are Bad for Democracy. You can see how it's, a, in a sense, a natural teleology for brand identity to start to uh, create a new remit. And I wonder, like, there's a few things that made me think about. It. It made me think about David Foster Wallace's writing, how he kind of foresaw that corporations would become like almost sort of literal, would have literal dominion. I mean, we can see from the growth of like sort of super corporations, tech companies in particular, how they ultimately own so so much psychic space and uh, cyber space that for them to sort of, sort of say, well, why don't we just run Norway now? Or even, you know, the United States wouldn't, it's not... It's not entirely implausible. And I suppose, it, you know, I'm minded also of um, like something that I felt a while ago that change only comes, incremental change or even reform only comes about when it's no longer, you just can't hold it together. Like say, for example, the most obvious example being the abolition of slavery. It's like, oh, we can't actually get away with that anymore, but we can get away with this new thing that's basically keeping all of the key components of slavery and it seems that that's the way that progress for which we're all continually congratulating ourselves operates according to those principles well, so, yeah it's a great point and uh, this is the first I've done many many interviews and podcasts and nobody's ever used the word teleology before so congratulations thank you fantastic word that I think needs to be well it needs some marketing behind it to get it out there um but anyways <laughs> yes <laughs> uh, you're absolutely right um slavery is really interesting and and the point you make is a really good one that we abolish slavery but then we maintain labor conditions that are such and a capitalist system that's such that people have to work in order to survive and they have to work often in highly exploited and slave-like conditions so in terms of the actual lives of people they don't really improve that much and particularly african americans with the abolishment of slavery in that country, um, you know, the lives immediately after slavery were not that much different than they had been before. And so I do think change happens in, in that way, that the, the sort of the categories, the understandings change, but the lived lives and material realities of people don't that much. And I think that is what we're going through now with, with corporations. Um, what I document in my book and film is um, a kind of two, but by the way, that film that you saw, the first one, I, I now have a sequel out there. Uh, it's going to be in the UK and the United States fairly soon. So it's kind of making its way from the festivals into distribution. Um, and it's based on this book. And the point I make is that there's been a kind of two prong strategy. The first prong has been over the last 40 years, Big business has done everything it can to whittle down, push back, uh, force into retreat um, social the social state. 
uh, social programs, social government. Uh, they push for privatization. They push for deregulation. So they push for a smaller and smaller uh, capacity of the state to actually serve the needs of the people and to regulate them. So on the one hand, they've done that. On the other hand, they've said, and by the way, we're good now, so we can take over those roles that the diminished state used to run. Uh, whether it's schools or water systems or whatever. So that's been the two-prong attack. So the, the uh, shrouding themselves in goodness has been very much part of a deliberate strategy to sort of finish the work of taking over everything. Um, and they've done, a, they've done a very good job at it. And I think the, the point when I realized it, I was shooting with a crew in, in Davos, Switzerland at the big sort of Davos uh, World Economic Forum uh, thing in 2018. And I caught a guy named Richard Edelman in the town square and I had my camera operator. And so we did an interview on the fly. Richard Edelman is like probably the world's most uh, well-known and influential business guru. He's the guy that corporations pay tons of money to, uh, to explain to them what's happening. And he also is a big believer that corporations should be good, should embrace purpose, should do the right thing, all that kind of stuff. And so the way he put it to me is that corporations are good actors now so they can fill the voids left by retreating governments. Now, of course, the reason governments are retreating is because corporations have pushed them into retreat. They've lobbied, they've influenced, they've done everything they can to drive down taxes, regulation, and all of that. So now that they're in retreat, corporations step in and say, okay, we'll solve the problem. They don't work anymore, so we'll take over. But then I said to him, well, what happens to democracy? Because whatever else you might say about corporations, they're not democratic institutions. And this is what he said to me, and it's a direct quote, it's in the film, it's in the book, and it's chilling. He said, because this is the good guy of corporate capitalism. He said, I'm not much of a believer in political citizenship. I believe in the power of the marketplace. Now, that's something Maggie Thatcher would have said. But the thing is, when it's said in Davos in, 2000, in, in 2018 by Richard Edelman, it sounds really nice and fluffy and good because now corporations are good. And so ah, political citizenship, not really working, you know, so just let us run things. We'll do it much better and more efficiently. Um, and I think that is the mentality that is happening within this whole movement that talks about corporations being great, good actors now, sustainable, socially responsible, all of that. Well, that's really cool. I wonder how it aligns with the recent um, movement by neoliberals, i.e. specifically the US Democrat Party from a kind of uh, socially conscientious, working class oriented, wealth distribution, fixated model of politics. Not that that's ever been particularly prominent in US politics, I acknowledge, towards a kind of a social justice uh, sort of motif led, doubtlessly addressing sort of many uh, important issues, but perhaps neglecting the kind of um, obligations of citizenship or at least creation of parameters for citizenship that y your man there sort of said was kind of irrelevant. You know, it seems that there's n nowhere really, like p there's no political party that can in good faith make a counter argument because they've 
both in the case of America and you know all in a few other countries, but long been owned by the interests that you're describing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the end of the book and film um, sort of showcase examples of politicians who try to break out of that neoliberal mode. We went over to Barcelona and talked to the mayor there at a Colau. Uh, we look at, we, we feature Bernie Sanders a little bit. We look at Shama Sawant, a socialist city councillor in Seattle. So we, we acknowledge that the problem is that the traditional parties of the quote left or the progressive parties, whether it's, uh, I mean, labor in Britain is complicated. Um, Corbyn, uh, you know, may be seen as somebody trying to go in a non-neoliberal direction. But for the most part, the parties of the left in Europe, around the world, Canada, the United States, if you could ever call the Democratic Party a party of the left, um, have kind of abandoned their class roots. And some people say, oh, well, that's a good thing because now they're embracing broader identities and going more in the identity politics thing. And that's a good thing because uh, those things need to be recognized. And they're absolutely right. Those things do need to be recognized. Mm -hmm. But what also needs to be recognized and what isn't being recognized is that those things are intrinsically woven into class. Yeah. And, and that, for me, the, the ultimate victory of neoliberalism is that it has extinguished class consciousness, it's extinguished class as an analytical tool in the academy, and it's um, been able, and it can do that because capital doesn't really care about uh, you know, gender, race, all these issues have historically been part of what's helped generate capital is exploiting gender, exploiting race, all of that. But capital today can be quite magnanimous about equality, mm -hmm. so long as it doesn't attack its class position. Wow. So if you make in, if you make class invisible, you can recognize all kinds of inequalities as long as you don't recognize their intrinsic connections to class. And that's what's happened in mainstream progressive politics is class has been evaporated. And that's why companies like Amazon or Jamie Dimon at JP Morgan Chase can come in now as heroes and saviors and say, hey, we believe in equality because the term equality no longer encompasses the profound wow. of them having the class position they have. That's cool. Um, I've got a few things. First off the bat, I'm sorry that I'm the person to tell you that uh, Jeremy Corbyn has been replaced by a centrist lawyer. <laughs> as the leader of the of the labor party um I, I, yeah, but there but there was a moment right and just like in the united states even though uh sanders didn't you know succeed there was a moment where you saw maybe a glimmering of a counter neoliberal kind of politics happening within a mainstream yes and in both cases it was interesting how the sort of host party we could call it like you know sort of attacked that idea vehemently using sort of fascinating in tropes to isolate, discredit, and ultimately and uh, annihilate those figures. Though, sort of, uh, 
Bernie's been sort of posited into this sort of neutered avuncular role, it seems now, sat in his mittens as a sort of a reminder as as the relentless march continues forth. Um, I I like what you said there about the magnanimity of corporations around equality that's extracted from essentially from economics, given that economics is sort of palpably and most plainly their raison d'etre and their sort of the only reason for existing. And I was wondering what you thought, Joel, about the kind of uh, like while these uh, sort of movements around equality have been taking place, which can be bolted on to uh, corporate and brand identities, you know, sort of like around the sort of the horrors of the murder of uh, George Floyd and the sort of subsequent Black Lives Matter revival and explosion. The participation of corporations in that movement was notable. And I'm always, myself, I suppose, was of my age and the kind of experiences I've had, sort of cynical about anything that can be... Like, like if... Even in our country, when I see Boris Johnson and Prince Charles applauding for the NHS, I'm immediately like, well, if they're into it, like I don't know how this can. This is obviously it's not a problem. It's obviously not. A, it's not an attack on the you know on the one vulnerable point that they always put in the Death Star for you know narrative reasons. Uh, but but like um, uh, I feel like this demonization of the working class, which is sort of I think part like led to the rise of Trumpism, Brexit, you know, even perhaps QAnon. I, I see now as an accompaniment to uh, the rise of identity politics and the ability of identity politics to be bolted on to corporate agendas in a way that you can't do with people uh, whose identities are inherently cl- derived from class. I mean, here's the crazy thing. It's it's the I mean, well, let me address a few points there because there are a lot of them. The first one is you are right to be cynical about the posturing. I mean, Amazon is talking about Black Lives Matter while at the same time busting unions primarily uh, being put together uh, by workers who are people of color, African-Americans in the United States and other people of color in highly exploitative conditions in conditions where they're unsafe due to the pandemic. Uh, they're trying to form unions. They're, they're trying to say something. They're getting fired for doing that. They're working in horrendous slave-like conditions. They're having any minimal employment standards that are provided them by law, evaded, avoided, squelched, lobbied against. So it is just absolutely, it's hard to be, it's hard to be too cynical. And that's a very sad thing. Uh, But it's hard to be too cynical when corporations jump on these bandwagons or or gender or 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 any of them. And and the trick is always the way that they separate the issue from class relations, from work related. They don't say, you know, Amazon doesn't say, hey, we care about African American people. So we're going to raise the wages of our warehouse employees and stop trying to bust their unions. The day that they do that, I'll, you know, the day that 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 uh, Jonathan and Prince Charles uh, say, hey, you know what? The NHS is really going to ship because it's not properly funded. So let's raise corporate taxes by 23%. You know, let's let's make sure that corporations and wealthy people provide what they should be providing so that we can have a decent healthcare system. When they do that, and when Jeff Bezos, you know, says, 
hey, I want my employees to unionize, then we should have this chat again uh, because I may be a little bit less cynical and you may be too. But that's, an, that's not going to happen. Even the uh, existence of uh, the the profits currently enjoyed by the corporations on the scale of Amazon, these sort of global giants, is an, an indication of wrongdoing. And the more that we sort of um, unpick imperialism and colonialism, it becomes kind of evident that there are, you know, I read a great book recently by Nick Hayes on trespass uh, about like, you know, sort of like 97% of the land in this country or 93% of the land in this country you can't go on. And he starts to sort of address why that is from a sort of a quite a sort of an empirical uh, perspective. You know, it's like a lovely, lovely book, actually. But he talks about how like none of these beautiful heritage houses, like all of them, if you look at their slavery, colonization, murder, brutalization, like there's no one with historic wealth that's not got blood on their hands. You, like whether it's the royal family or these like, you know, sort of traditional British companies like Tate and Lyle or whatever, all of these com- companies are built on exploitation. In a sense, you can't generate profit without exploitation, without treating the labor of human individuals as a resource and the earth itself as a resource. I wonder how that kind of lens, Joel, could be applied to sort of these modern corporations. And if there is a corollary there between sort of like the acquisition of historic legacy wealth and you know modern wealth like this well i think the first thing that has to be said is that there isn't a, a dollar or a pound or any currency unit in circulation today including the ones in my pot well actually i don't have any in my pocket i only have credit and debit cards but anyways including what i have in my pocket that can't trace its lineage somehow to either historical or contemporary slavery, colonialism, and certainly uh, exploitation of the earth. It's just not possible. The original pools of capital that were created uh, among the European powers and then the United States thereafter um, were based on the extraction of labor from people who weren't paid for their labor, i.e. slaves. They were based on the extraction of labor from people under the thumb of colonialist regimes who though may have been paid for their labor were not paid sufficiently uh, to live and lived in horrendous conditions. Uh, They were extracted from lands that were literally stolen from indigenous people who were killed uh, and slaughtered to get at those lands and whose cultures were destroyed. And they were uh, extracted from the earth in a myriad of ways, um, whether literally from the ground or by destroying the atmosphere uh, through spewing uh, chemicals and gases into it. Extraction, exploitation are the things that make profit. I mean, Karl Marx knew this, right? That was, that was the basis of, of his theory. He, he called it surplus value. Surplus value is the difference between uh, you know, the, the, the thing that you're exploiting and the money that you get from exploiting it. And that's profit. Fuck. What are we going to do then? Because, uh, you know, I feel like when we speak about Marx and socialism, it feels like, you know, uh, culturally 
we're flogging a dead horse. But you know, but but I recognise when we're talking about regulation and taxation, I can see like, well, how would you ever, without the use of taxation and regulation, how would you ever begin to redress this sort of you know phenomenal problem that we're confronted by? But you, I can't see it. Like, do you not feel like that socialism is a bit retrograde? Or do you think this is a matter of rebranding, or do you think it's a a requirement for re- reinvention? I think people have used different words uh, throughout history to describe roughly the same things. I mean, we've had systems that have been based on uh, oligarchies, plutocracies, uh, you know, capitalism is one of those where there are a few people sitting at the top who do very well and then there's everybody else. Um, And then we've had systems far less frequently um, where there is some attempt to ensure that everybody's doing okay, even if some people are doing better than others. Uh, Then we've had systems that have tried to make it so that everybody is doing exactly the same. I'll call those communist systems, and they didn't work very well either. So the, the ones that have been successful have tended to operate in this place where they say, we're not gonna strive for absolute equality. We're not gonna strive for perfection, but we're gonna try to ensure that everybody can live a decent life, that the planet isn't ruined, uh, that there is opportunity for people to move out of whatever situation they're in, you know, that kind of thing, which is basically the social democracy that we have in the post-depression, post-war period in advanced European countries. I see that as a start towards something else. I don't know if we're going to call that socialism. Here would be my pitch for socialism being a pretty decent word to use, and that is versus capitalism. If we're going to have an ism, shouldn't it be, which is a teleology, right, to get back to that word. And and ism says that the word that comes before the ism is the goal we're trying to achieve. Okay, so sticking social in front of the ism makes sense to me. We're trying to achieve a good society. a a social body that works and is functional. Sticking capitalism in front of the ism is one of the most absurd and ridiculous things that you could imagine. I mean, if you came down from outer space and looked at a society and said, hey, we want to call ourselves capitalism. Our teleology is going to be capital. And somehow or another, if producing capital um, you know, tr- a bit of it'll trickle down and, and the people who are doing all the work of producing it but getting no benefit will get a little bit of the stuff that trickles down from the people who get all the benefit. What do you think of that? You know, most aliens would say that's ridiculous, I think. I mean, unless they came from capitalist society. <laughs> they would say, I, I mean, why would you want to do that? Why, why wouldn't you stick social in front of theism and say, let's have a society that tries to make a good society? Isn't, isn't that the proper goal? And, and so that's why I want to just hold on. I, I agree. The word socialism has so much baggage with it. And, you know, not least of which is Stalinism and, and national socialism in Germany. Like it's a word that, you know, has been booted around a bit. So maybe we should come up with a different word. Maybe we should get the person who, you know, designs all the names for stuff in Ikea to come up with a word, you know, <laughs> you know, the Glockensplink system or something. But so I, I, I so I kind of want to hang on to the idea of socialism, because in literal terms, it seems to make sense to me that social should be the ism. Um, 
but you know we need to factor in environmental stuff to that so i kind of like the idea of green red coalitions all of that but getting back to your point about extraction and exploitation to me that is really what we have to aim at do we want a system where the ism is about not only licensing extraction but glorifying extraction <laughs> capitalism is or do we want a word or a system that says extraction should not be the end the end should be creating a decent society if we have to exploit and extract a bit here or there in order to get there we have to do it in a way that's respectful to what we're extracting from um we have to do it in a way that minimizes harm but that the main thing is to create a society that is is good that should be the ism yes i see that uh how uh capitalism all of these social systems at some point must be undergirded by psychic energies and primal impulses in human beings in order that they have any kind of uh they stick you know like there's and i was thinking that that sort of individualism is a sort of a significant uh way to underwrite capitalism if you think that it's so easy for human beings to think well what i want and what affects my family directly is what's important to me an ideology even the one that's sort of somewhat invisible at least isn't explicit in terms of like flag waving it seems like the tropes motifs and um, sort of I don't know, anthems of capitalism are still derived from socialism. They're, certainly nationalism, they're derived from the idea there is this thing that is a country that we're all part of and we all contribute to. And then that is we're invited to accept that, that sits alongside the, like the free market and other things that have the word free tacked onto them to disguise what they actually are, which is bloody expensive. So it feels like much... I. I, I'm interested that you, in your first film, used that um, blatant psychological sort of diagnosis in uh, identifying how a corporation behaves. And I wonder if you're interested in the application of sort of psychological and even spiritual models to critique, dissect, and possibly to provide alternatives for uh, the current model. I asked this somewhat because I'm reminded that the origins of british socialism sort of come via a different route than sort of you know soviet communism i.e sort of methodism christianity ideas of tribe and brotherhood and fraternity belonging love service sacrifice sort of religious ideas really i suppose without which you know even humanitarianism from a secular perspective is difficult to uh, vitalize i wonder what you think about that it's a lot i know i've said a lot there yeah, I, I, well, I think psychology is absolutely at, at the core of it all. And I agree with you entirely that ideology is not a is in its most interesting forms is not the flag waving capital I ideology, but it's rather the things that we take as natural, as necessary, as inevitable that we just presume that we presume in the way that uh, individualism is right in the way that if I walk into a table, I'll stub my toe, that these are, are just uh, inherent truths. And, and I, I, in terms of this film, I was really thinking of using uh, a psychological phenomenon known as Stockholm Syndrome to, um, uh, to describe our relationship to corporations. Mm. Uh, that, uh, you know, Stockholm Syndrome is, is about the, the captor in 
uh, or the, the, the person who's captive in a hostage situation falling in love with the captor. Um, and, and, and in a way, that's what's happened to us with corporations. They've captured us, we've fallen in love. And I played around with that. As you well know, uh, narrative devices always seem better when you wake up with a start at three in the morning uh, and write them down on your little notepad than they do when you actually try them. And it just, it didn't work. It wasn't as clean as the sort of psychopath metaphor. So, uh, so we abandon it. But I do think that psychology is at the root of all this and that any ideology to be effective, and I mean, Gramsci knew this, Marx knew this, um, any ideology to be effective has to have a grain of truth to it. And there's no question that neoliberalism has a large grain of truth to it. We, we relate to the idea of individual freedom. We have this adolescent desire to just do what we want and have nobody tell us not to. We relate to uh, the idea of, of being unconstrained, of being able to do whatever we want, of the heroic individual. God knows we see it in you know, every film we watch, every story we read, even ones not written by Anne Rand. I mean, you know, the, this idea of the heroic individual is a very powerful one and it's a very real one. And, and we relate to consumer gratification. You know, we like eating good stuff. We, we like to get nice products. We like to drive nice cars and wear nice clothes. So we are all of that as, as people. And the trick that's happened with neoliberalism is corporations have equated their desire to have those psychological things to ours. In other words, they say, hey, we understand that you want freedom. Well, we do too. So don't make us pay taxes. Don't regulate us. We're just like you. We want freedom and you're just like us. So it's part of the elision of, of the class difference between the citizen, the working person, and the mega corporation is the mega corporation presents itself as an ideological proxy for individuals and says, if you give us our freedom, then you'll be free too. We're all the same. We're in this together. We're in this thing for freedom together. Now, what I would add to that is as human beings, we're incredibly complex. I'm not going to be embarrassed about the fact that I like a good bottle of wine, that I have consumer appetites, that I like to be free, that I don't like to be told what to do, that I do have those adolescent desires for freedom. But I also have a whole bunch of other things. I care about other people. I want to help them. I want to do good in the world. All of those Methodist Christian ideas that underlay the rise of socialism in the UK, in Canada as well, the idea that the collective good is necessary for us as individuals to flourish, the idea that freedom doesn't only mean I can do what I want, but it also means that I have health care so that I'm not dead. So that, that there's a social system that supports me, that gives me education so that I can flourish in the world. And so as soon as you start to unpack our human psychologies and desires, a lot of them actually require the very things that socialism and social states and collective endeavor provides, not least of which is to have a world that's inhabitable. Our individual freedom isn't going to be worth very much if we burn up, you know, if, if societies don't function anymore, if they're either underwater or so arid that they can't support people. You can be screaming about individual freedom. I'm not going to wear my mask, you know, but if the planet has gone to shit, that's not going to help you very much. And, you know, the pandemic's a good example of that. If we've gone 
if if you know if the pandemic just spreads like crazy and blah 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 and, and everybody is sick and dying and everything else because no collective measures have been taken then we as individuals don't have a lot of freedom so i think you know neoliberalism has succeeded by simplifying the idea of freedom and creating a simple equation across class lines between corporate freedom and individual's freedom. And that is the power of the ideology. It's really easy to unpack it intellectually, but I think it's also broadly sedimented into people's consciousness in ways that, that make it quite a task to, to turn it around, which is you know, why I do the work I do. I mean, that's uh, aimed at exactly that task. Yeah, it's brilliant. Because um, I was thinking that perhaps the obviously the um, beneficiaries of this negligence uh, created through this uh, the simple equation across class lines of corporate freedom equating to individual freedom. The, the beneficiaries of the, uh, the, the 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 vacancy created by that have been politicians and political ideologies that can easily mobilize nationalism for example as and it's sort of its remnant sense of a community that that's that's real apparent that that's left that that class that those the, the emotions that are held by the within the class discourse and within the class and dialectic are not they're not gone away that's it's still there it has to has to be held the other thing i was saying when you were talking about like the necessity for collective action to facilitate individual freedom was uh, that it made me feel joel that we perhaps have a kind of to use a popular phrase baked in inability to appreciate ideas of that scale even beyond you know perhaps if we can appreciate them intellectually if we can appreciate them intellectually that's as far as it goes because we're simply not evolved for the conditions we find ourselves in that we i wonder if we ought i can see the need for this kind of uh like a sort of i don't know what you want to call it sort of like post-war state socialism that you sort of described there earlier but in a way, those are the conditions that led to us to where we are now. And I'm sure you could, and I'm sure you have traced the sort of points of deregulation and decreasing taxation with Reagan, Clinton, you know, those sort of pivotal moments that have led us to where we are. But I still see it as a sort of like, a, you know, a course that we were on. And whilst I would never claim that it was, you know, inevitable, I, I feel that... One the way that corporations learn certain essential truths and then take them on board, which again chimes nicely with your your psychopath notion and personification there, is that a way that we perhaps have to look at what human beings are capable of handling. And of course, you know, I'm not suggesting that I'm outside of humanity, but like that we we are tribal animals that we can't get our heads round like the globalism has sort of appalled us on some level it's created uh, fragmentation and uh, conflict because actually there's no reason for me if i'm living in delaware to appreciate and respect the tribal customs of some tr tribe in bloody iceland or whatever like just let you know like like the, you know let them get on with it isn't an ideology it's a reality you just don't need to you don't need to know 
I feel that globalism, because it's sort of ultimately led by free market imperatives, has exposed people to a lot of sort of cultural differences that are then sort of mobilised to create this kind of tension and disparity that ironically leads to the further dominion of the already ben those already benefiting. Yeah, I mean, I I think there, there's there's a lot in in what you're saying. The flip side of it is that what globalism has done in the form it's uh, taken in advanced capitalism is to undermine people's ability to create those communities in their own communities. In in other words, the 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 um, the economic infrastructure that they need is taken away as companies take jobs elsewhere. Um, the uh, security that they have of a good healthcare and education system is taken away as corporations succeed in destroying social infrastructures. So you've got this weird combination where on the one hand, we're supposed to be a global community, we're supposed to care what's happening in Finland. And at the same time, nobody cares about us in our own community. And I think that leads to the kind of uh, horrible angst and xenophobia and racism that we're seeing today. I think that if you completely gut the social infrastructure of people's lives, if you completely gut the very idea that there should be a social infrastructure through neoliberal ideas, um, you start to force people more into a, a desperate tribalism, desperate in the sense that they feel their lives have no hope, that they feel that in the name of some kind of global ideal, their own communities, their own families, their own lives are being destroyed. And I think when that happens, people start looking for others to blame. And they start blaming those outsiders that they see are either invading their communities or taking away their jobs somewhere else or whatever. And I think that is part of what we're seeing. I mean, what I argue in the book is, is that corporations are, they're psychopaths, right? I mean, as institutions, they legally, I'm a legal scholar, that's my day job, and they legally have to uh, serve their own interests, i.e make money for their shareholders. That's what they're legally designed to do. Well, if you are that, then you are going to seek influence over government so that you can get government to do things that will help you do that. You are going to expand into new markets like schools and water systems because it's your job to try to make money off things and you're running out of other things, so you're gonna go over there. I mean, the very dynamic of a capitalist corporation is to take over government, expand its domain. That's not conspiracy theory. That's just following the logic of how the institution is put together. Amass more power, exercise it, and then amass more power so that you can make more profit. As a consequence of that, we've pushed a kind of economic globalization based on unregulated markets, and we've pushed the lives of most uh, working class people down. And we've taken away hope and we've taken away possibility. And we've, we've thereby forced people into this desperate tribalism that has then spawned the kind of uh, xenophobia and racism that's led to some of these current political movements, including uh, Trumpism in the United States. Uh, that is very dangerous um, and, and very, very uh, disturbing. But the, but the problem is that and you see it throughout history, is that rather than looking to those in power, the corporations as having 
you over as having been the cause of the problem, people turn on each other. People turn on each other and, and, and fall into these sort of xenophobic silos. So, um, so that, I mean, that's what's happening. The, the big business has made a, a very deliberate campaign to push back democracy over the last 40 years. They've destroyed social solidarity as a result. They've destroyed social infrastructure and they planted the seeds for this kind of interscene uh, warfare that's happening uh, uh, among and between uh, different groups of people along racial grounds or gender grounds. I mean, there's rise of patriarchy. I mean, just all these horrible things are what happens when the sort of basic social and economic commonality that we were trying to achieve in the post-war years, as imperfect as they were, but when that all just falls apart or more accurately is destroyed. That's cool. That's amazing analysis. Thank you. I thought of a lot of things. I thought of how much of the nationalism that's been observable in these recent historic sunderings, Brexit, Trumpism, etc., has had a kind of garish, theatrical, ersatz air, a performative uh, a countenance, not real somehow. You know, like it's, it's not like a nationalism that's sort of, um, as you say, sedimented with uh, a true feeling. It's a performance because it's, it's occupying a hollowed out structure. I remember like whenever the last um, Remembrance Day was that people could be near each other. So I guess it's a year or maybe it's two years ago. I was on some green. I live in rural England and... Um, like the sort of the Cub Scout like movements or accumulate the, the of both genders or genders like you know they're all sort of gathering there and uh, like there's a sort of a, a priest and all this stuff they're performing this thing and there's this minute silence or whatever and a couple of songs the songs that like the the brass band music had to be piped in and I thought I bet even twenty years ago there would have been a brass band drawn from the community that's gone hollowed out the people didn't know the words to the songs no more there was no sort of sense of a rousing chorus of a coming together and even in the minute silence joel the um supermarket delivery vans with their lurid branding of fresh produce uh, they patrolled the green making their deliveries in the silence and i felt like that Yes, it's been hollowed out. It's been hollowed out. There is nothing for us to inhabit, precisely as you say, because of this prerequisite to uncover and discover new markets, to create more power, to create more profit. And so it's, in a sense, no one individual within that. And when I once spoke to Yanis Varoufakis, he said on this podcast, he said um, when he was dealing with like the... The Chancellor of the EU, briefly when he was sort of heading up Syriza there or in a senior role, like he said that he realised when he was talking to that person, he was like the economics minister of the EU, the most powerful person in that room, said that person had no power except the the power systemically afforded them. So that person couldn't go, yeah, yeah, don't worry about Syriza, like the debt of Greece. You know, he couldn't say that. He could only say what the system allowed. And so it's sort of obvious that the systemic change is what's required. When I talk to people that are anarchist, they are suspicious of the state as a libertarian. But it's difficult to see without some kind of confederacy that sort of amounts to a state how 
interests as powerful as those that we're describing that have wreaked this cultural havoc upon our nations can ever be confronted unless there is an uh, opposing force which ultimately has to be the people representative of the people it's difficult to see at the moment joel how that coalescence may occur have you thought about that much yeah yeah i think about that every day and 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 it's what it's what keeps me it's what keeps me awake at, at night i mean i'm not i i was drawn to anarchism in my youth um i'm sure many people would say that but um but i'm not an anarchist for exactly the reasons you're suggesting and that is the concentrations of power that are that are presently enabled by the state namely corporations are created by the state markets are created by the state you cannot have markets you cannot have uh, corporations without legislatures and government making it so those are legal institutions and legal institutions are created by the state so the only way we're going to unwind them or unwind their power or 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 have popular power in some humanistic way uh, challenge that is by engaging within the state. I don't see any other way. I mean, I suppose there's armed revolution and all that, but you know, history shows those don't turn out very well and I'm not an advocate. So I end my book and my film with pleas to re-democratize democracy, basically to rather than occupying the streets, occupy government. I see, and I don't mean just go run for office. I mean, really rethink what it means to be democratic. And so, as I mentioned earlier, I feature political movements and politicians uh, at the end of the book and film that have tried to meld um, a kind of humanistic and, and environmental activism with gaining political office within large P politics. Um, and that see, self-consciously see politics as connected to what's happening in the streets, as connected to what's happening in social movements, as connected to all of that. To me, it's that kind of symbiosis between um, activism and uh, elected representative democratic office that is the next place we have to go. It's not where we should aspire to end up, but I'm not a utopian thinker. I, I can't think five steps down the line. I, I can only think now. And I think in this moment now, it's not enough anymore to just go out and protest. I, I don't, you know, we've seen that that doesn't really work, but protest is essential. It's just not sufficient. And it's not enough to just go and, you know, get elected on your city uh, council or or in parliament or whatever, uh, because you'll be absorbed into whatever it is your your party is up to. And we've talked about that already. There's a lot of co-optation that's happened on parties, progressive parties. So somehow you need to unite these these things. You need to be doing both. You need to be doing politics in the streets and politics uh, in the state. And, and again, I'm not, I'm not saying that I think this is where we should end up or this is the utopia, you know, representative democracy. But I think where we are now and given the state's role in constituting the power that we're struggling against, we need to be in there. We need to be struggling in there as well as from outside.
That's really cool. Thanks. Hey, so do you think that in a, just as a sort of thought experiment fantasy game, if like, and I know these are vastly different territories, but perhaps you, so you pick one. If like Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party had become elected, Sanders, Democrats had, you know, if he'd won the nomination, become elected. What, how do you imagine such a thing would play out given the sort of uh, financial opposition and media opposition, a figure that was generally interested in regulating the media, which was obviously a sort of subset of global corporations? Uh, how do you think that they would fare? And I suppose that's a sort of a lead up question to do you think it's possible to, um, you know, sort of inhabit existing parties and take them over? Or do you think you have to establish new sort of, you know, populist in the right sense of the word populist uh, political movements? But I do answer that first bit because I liked that bit of the question. Yeah. I, you know, I, I mean, there's a great film, uh, a very British coup. And I mean, that that's definitely one way that things could have worked out. Had Corbyn or Sanders um, been elected, they they might have been pushed out in in that way. Um, but, you know, there are other narratives that are possible. And probably the most realistic narrative is they would have been very frustrated. Their agendas would have been frustrated. They would have pushed harder than we can expect uh, Biden, for example, to push. They would have probably had some successes. Um, they would have had a lot of failures. It would have depended upon how their parties and their parliamentary or congressional majorities responded to it. Um, but it would have been a step in the right direction. I don't think we would have all of a sudden been living in a, in a better world. The fact that in the United States, 70 million people voted for Trump uh, suggests that you know, the world in the United States would not all of a sudden become shiny if, if Bernie Sanders was elected. Um, I think it's, it's, nothing is going to be dramatic. What really needs to happen, and, and this will get to the second part of your question, what really needs to happen is people need to be getting involved, not just in national politics, but in politics at every level, level at their local councils, their cities. Um, it has to be a, a sort of broad movement. It, it's not gonna happen just from, uh, from the top down, as important as that is. But as we were talking about, it has a lot to do with psychology. And I think that citizens becoming involved in politics, seeing that there's possibility in politics, feeling democracy, not just hearing about it, but actually feeling it as a, as a, as a sort of psychological, phenomenological thing in their minds and hearts and souls, that's kind of what's needed to get us from, to feel their power actually as citizens and their obligation as citizens to be involved in governance. Now, can we do that through uh, existing parties? Do we need to create new ones? Um, you know, that's a, I, I, I don't know if the, you look at Sanders, he ran as a Democrat, he sits as an independent. Um, I, you know, I think if you go into an existing party and you, you draw upon the more progressive tendencies within it and you change its character almost entirely, it doesn't matter that you call it the Labour Party anymore, if in substance it's something different. Or you take the approach that Ada Colau took in Barcelona, which is she created an entirely new party of activist groups and civil society groups that had been shunted out of the Spanish um, policies or parties of the left, which had become kind of neoliberal. So I don't think it matters that much whether you sort of take over an existing party or start a new party. What matters is 
what your vision is and whether you succeed in realizing it in either of those contexts. Is she Catalan independence? It's an interesting question, not really. Um, she is sympathetic and she took a stand against the police uh, sort of uh, repression. Um, but she is she is somebody who put was on the other side of an independence candidate in 2019 and just barely squeaked through and won that election. So she's not seen as that. She's much more uh, what I would call um, democratic, socialist, eco-feminist, uh, social movement with a class basis kind of a politician. When you briefly mentioned the 70 million Trump voters, I wonder if I often think as our discussion has covered that the likely interests of those groups would be better met by a legitimate democratic you know leftist socialist movement that in a way really what people people when you said you're not a utopian thing i think god that's all i am i find it so difficult to think of anything practical i just like i cut straight to the bit where people are living in small sort of uh democratic communities and everyone's got jobs and it's like it's all sort of simple and straightforward and i forget about the bit between where there's either got to be yeah, a lot of democratic campaigning or somehow you've got to get control of the government and uh, the police force and the military seems like it might be tricky um like um I, I suppose what I um, I wonder, like I, said, I do wonder, and I was more involved in it for a brief while, like in sort of how to present a different face, like uh, of populism. My my, like this moment in Europe after the financial crash that saw the rise of Podemos, Syriza, Beppe Grillo, these sort of popular out out anti-establishment or sort of extra establishment, super establishment figures. That was an interesting sort of moment, and as precisely as you said, that, that you know that that, that yeah, there was um co-optation is what sort of ultimately sort of took place in those cases i sometimes fantasize about what sort of set of policies would mobilize the electorate particularly in a landscape where you could preemptively say look these are my only interests so i don't imagine that i'm going to get a very fair run with the media and the establishment, it seems like the policies would be, you know, like it's gonna be regulation, taxation. And like when I was doing that, my little fancy fantasy politics question there earlier, that like I envisaged that like the city, how 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 would the city of London respond to a, like a, a genuine democratic presence in government that was interested in financial regulation, taxation, like that that I guess you would see like because you know in the campaigns you sort of see those threats played out in the media. These companies will leave these jobs will disappear this will happen and like you know if that doesn't work further demonization it seems with a sort of a, with a sophisticated electorate you could say look this is these are what the policies are this is how we're going to get the necessary resources this is like you know the, um, adam curtis who i'm friends with brilliant filmmaker you must know and, and i i guess he would love your work i've not spoke to him about you but i will um like it would surely he says that there's no vision and that's the problem and that's what's playing out in politics that no one's saying this is what we're going to do it's going to be great and it's like it's, there's going to be mistakes but we're going this way and we're going to do it together we're going to create this kind of society and i wonder what type of you know because we operate within such narrow margins politically i wonder what like the ideas might be 
that people would f- feel motivated by, whether or not you I- identify as a Trump supporter or a Bernie supporter or whatever. It's likely that really what you can't, you know, it's not normally the hard edge of stuff that people are getting into. And if they do, it's because of unconscious, emotional reasons, I would argue. And I'm sure that's something you'd be sympathetic to, you know, given your previous critical mode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think you just need look at the uh, polling. Um, when people are asked, you know, should everybody have a safe, clean environment to live in a home? They say yes, in massive numbers, um, you know, 70, 80 percent um, health care. And this is even in the United States, you know, health care, social security, um, a, um, a, a sort of minimum wage. I mean, all of these policies uh, do very well in polling. And it's no surprise. I mean, people want to live a decent life in decent communities. They want to have hope. You know, they want to have hope that their kids will do better than them. I mean, all these these narratives are are powerful in us as human beings. You know, we want to have a good time. We want to survive. We want to be able to go down to the pub. You know, we want we want to have enough money in our pockets that when we go to the pub, not only can we get a pint, but we can actually feel that kind of euphoric feeling of everything's OK. That <sighs> everything isn't going to fall apart tomorrow. And to me. If, if you run with that as a political party, not with all the ideology and the flag waving and everything else, but just, you know, you know what, we, this is a basic minimum of being human. I mean, like deer do this in herds, you know, they make sure that they look after each other. These are very powerful ideas. We care about each other, even if we're strangers. You know, I mean, Jesus Christ, I mean, he did a, he had a good pitch. <laughs> you know, he did well. I mean, you know, half the world, right? And and those were his ideas. You know, I mean, he wasn't talking about housing and social welfare, but he was saying, you know, we want you to lead, lead a decent life, care for your neighbor. Even if you don't know them, you should feel some responsibility to them. I, so I think it's going, going back to psychology and going into the things that really make us feel okay. Uh, almost that ecstasy of of feeling that things are okay um you know that's that's the platform and i think sanders free college education you know yeah had some of that he he made some of those appeals and look at how many people including trump supporters went for it and uh, it's the more that the dominant political parties in the majority of countries align with one another and corporate interests, the more territory is being seeded in which these policies could be uh, presented because there is no one like if you're voting you know i know what's going to happen obviously in the next election or the last election you know though where where, where corbyn was the leader labor were just annihilated but that kind of obviously this there was a lot of i mean what he faced in the media was pretty hardcore yeah i mean part of what you have to do is you have to activate people to see the long game i mean you have to both be involved in politics but understand it's it's a means to an end oh thanks joel well you've given us a lot of practical advice for how to overthrow the british government within (laughs) accepted political means and I can't ask a lot more from a podcast guest than that a lot of them just come in and talk about horoscopes and stuff but you have provided a template 
Thank you so much. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry I've not yet read your book. I will read your book. I'll make sure that I talk about it at top and tail of the uh, of the podcast also. I'm really Fantastic. I thank and, you. And I, if, if people who would like to watch the film as well, yeah, go to joelbacken.com and all the information is there. Yeah, I'll be going to I'll be going to joelbacken.com and I'll be um I'll be watching it. I certainly loved your first film about psychopathic corporations and it really is a very mobilizing idea, very accessible and really really helpful, most memorable. Thank you for your education there. Um and please let me know if there's anything else I can ever do to uh, help you because I think you're a real great teacher. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me on. Cheers, Joel. I'll speak to you again soon. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode of Under the Skin with me, Russell Brand, produced as best she can by Jenny Mae Finn, talking to Joel Backen, who's got a fantastic new book out, which I can't recommend enough to you. But firstly, what's it? The New Corporation, How Good Corporations Are Bad for Democracy. Uh, there's a documentary film available. If you want to find out more about that, go to joelbacken.com. He's a brilliant teacher. You'll learn a lot by getting involved. All right. Well, thank you very much. And remember to go to russbrand.com to get on that mailing list and, you know, ask me anything and get some fantastic content. If you enjoyed this, why don't you listen to Gary Young or Khan Ross, both excellent thinkers and writers talking about some interesting ideas. And keep checking my YouTube channel daily for new videos. Thank you for listening to Under the Skin from Luminary.